I recognize that it's not in the bulletin, so this would be the time uh, for kids to be dismissed. If you, most of you, it seems, have that down pat. But if you're visiting with us today, um, this is the time when we dismiss our children to go back to the kids' space, unless you would like for them to be in here for the remainder of the service. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 6, uh, verses 1 to 8. The sermon title for today is A Sorrowful State, part 2. So last week we covered the first four verses of this section, which really kind of has to be taken as a section, but needs a pretty extensive treatment, so hence the part one and part two. And last week we covered these first four verses, and and this week we will cover the latter four. So verses five to eight will be the focus of today. And as I mentioned last week, those first four verses are some of the most difficult verses in the book of Genesis to interpret. And really, these are some of the most difficult verses in all of the Bible to interpret. I mean, uh, as, I, as I quoted last week uh, from a very well-known and well-respected uh, commentator of Genesis named Kenneth Matthews, he, in the New American Commentary series, he commented that uh, this is undoubtedly the most difficult, unquestionably the most difficult passage in all of Genesis. So I guess it's all downhill from here as we go up through uh, chapter 50 of this book. What does it mean in verse 2 when it says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Who are these sons of God? And maybe you had a really exciting time discussing this this week in group. I know in our group, it was, it was, uh, there was a lot of really rich discussion on this point. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated topic. And as I said last week, uh, when it, with regard to the sons of God, who are the sons of God, who are the daughters of man here mentioned, uh, there is much disagreement and much debate. So you can go back to any period in the history of the church and you can see uh, splits on this. I mean, not, not church splits, but you can, people don't split over this kind of thing, I hope. Uh, but you see disagreement over the interpretation. You see it in the patristic period, the period of the church fathers. You see it in the reformation period and you see it today among commentators, as well as well-known pastors. We were talking uh, in our, our group this week how, you know, you have folks like Wayne Grudem and R.C. Sproul on one side and people like John MacArthur and Kent Hughes on another side, and you could just begin to stack up uh, on both of those. And so this was, uh, this was what we got into in detail last week, and I will spare you a full repeat of this portion of last week's sermon, so I'm not going to do that. But in order to provide a little recap, there are two major views. I just want to put those, re-put those before you. Two major views that emerge when dealing with this passage, these first four verses, especially this sons of God portion. And there, uh, th- these are the two main views. There's, there's kind of other views as well, but these are the two major ones. One, that the sons of God are the descendants of Seth, And the daughters of man are the descendants of Cain. And so essentially the focus uh, on this view is that you've got a a godly line of people 
intermarrying with a godless line. And we see in the lead up to this that, that, that we do, in fact, in the, in the chapters leading up to chapter 6, we do very much have a kind of godly, worshipful, faithful, hopeful line. And we have a godless, murderous, vengeful kind of line. And so you get this. This is one of the major two views. So that's the first. The second is that the sons of God are actually fallen angels who somehow took on or possessed human bodies and joined themselves to human women. They, they lusted after human women and possessed or took on in some way that is unspecified uh, men, human men, and they intermarried with human women. And as strange as that may sound, uh, I made the case last week that the latter view is, uh, is, is more evidentially based, based on the text and based on uh, other, other things we discussed. And I won't repeat or rehearse those things. You can go back to, uh, to listen to last week's sermon where I go through some of the reasons why I hold the latter view, that is, that these are angels, that these are fallen angels whom Jude describes in verses 6 to 7. So I would interpret Jude 6 to 7 uh, to be referring to this particular period and this particular occurrence in history. And this is what it says there. Jude 6 to 7. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now let me stop there for a moment. I'm going to read the rest of it. Let me stop there for a moment and make just two points. One is that we know that, that there, there is a sense in which not all demons are chained, Right? We have demons that roam about. We have Satan who moves about like a roaring lion. So we already know that. But listen to what it goes on to say. And I think this is significant. He says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, you hear that? Likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued, here's the key, unnatural desire. Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. In other words, when you get to Jude 6 to 7, there seems to be a connection between 6 and 7 uh, regarding this, this perversion of the angels. They left their proper place. They, they, they departed from their proper activity. And that is similar to what we find likewise in Sodom and Gomorrah where, where men were uh, participating in homosexual acts and the whole city was taken over. The uh, whole city of Sodom was taken over by this. They left their, their proper way and went in a perverted way. So there seems to be even here a logic that, there, that connects what the men of Sodom and Gomorrah were doing and what the angels were doing in inter. Marrying with women. So you can go back and look into that. Some will say that Jude 6 to 7 is just referring to the fall of angels from heaven. Uh, so I'll, I'll just give that right back over to you. You can pursue that if you wish. But whatever view you take, whether it is the, the Sethite view or the fallen angel demonic view, whatever view you take, the overarching message of these eight verses is clear. Regardless. And that is that this is a sorrowful state. Here we are looking at the condition of the world before the flood. We're being prepared for a universal flood. We're not being prepared for a local flood in a part of Mesopotamia, as you might 
here on various documentaries of Netflix or wherever else, the History Channel. I don't even know. I don't have cable, so I don't even know if that still is a, is a channel. But a while ago, the History Channel would have all sorts of things about this. But uh, the condition of the world before the flood, the universal flood that took over the whole world. This is the state of mankind on the brink of judgment. We are looking at a world that brings God sorrow. And that is the reason why I've entitled this a sorrowful state. Because we're, it starts at the beginning in verse 1, and it happened that, or, or when, that's the way the text begins there in verse 1. So we're talking about a condition or a state of being, and this is to be defined from God's perspective as a sorrowful state of being in the world. At the end of verse 7, God says, I am sorry that I have made them. That is particularly incredible when you go through Genesis 1 and 2 and you see how much delight God has in creating people. How much delight God has in making everything. I mean, even the bushes, even trees. It's good. It's good. It's good. God delights. He rejoices in creation. We read last week from Job that the angels themselves, the sons of God, the angels themselves, they they reach up to heaven. They praise God for all that he has made. God delights in his work. The angels delight in his work. And then we get to the creation of man. And what does it say? And God saw that it was very good. So we go from this delighting in the creating of human beings, everything created for human beings, to this state of sorrow on the part of God about man's existence. And there are three main things to notice about this sorrowful state. And you'll find these in your bulletin. These are, these are the three points for today's sermon. So if you want to write those, well, they're already written there for you in the bulletin. But if you want to sort of use that as a, as a guide as you go through uh, today, and you can write notes next to that, or, or on the back page, you can put notes there as well. And so the three, the three things that, that we should notice about the sorrowful state, the three characteristics of the sorrowful state, or the three, three aspects or facets of this, are one, the demons, two, the depravity, and three, the destruction. So we covered the demons last week, we're not going to go through that again today. I just introduced you again to it just to kind of direct you back if you didn't hear that sermon to that. Uh, and, and there's much literature that you could read on that. I would encourage you to explore that further if it interests you. And it is important because it's in God's word. We talked about that at group too, that, that if God inspired it, uh, then we should uh, desire to know about it. We should desire to dig into it. So we've got the demons, the depravity, and the destruction. And we'll cover the last two today, the depravity and the destruction. So let me just start with this question. What should we be asking God to do in us this morning? There's a sense, as Mike prayed, in in which we ask God to do the same things every time we come to gather together to worship as God's people, we come together to worship him, to, to exalt him, that we would be edified, built up, conformed to Jesus, that we would grow in Christ and all of these things. But what specifically, in light of this passage of Scripture, as we sit underneath it, what specifically should we be asking God to do in us this morning? And I think it's kind of twofold, really. First, that we would feel the weight of sin. 
I mean, we constantly must feel the weight of sin. We get immune to sin in our culture. And this has always been the case. You don't think, if only we lived in the 1950s. Or if we lived in the 19th century. If only we lived in the days of the Puritans. No, it's always the case that human beings are immune to sin. Human beings are immune to the weight of sin, to to feeling the, the seriousness of sin. We must always be jostled into seriousness as it pertains to our sin and the sin that infects the whole world. And so you cannot read a passage like Genesis 6, 1 to 8 and not feel the weight of sin that must happen as we come to this place in God's word. But also that we would feel the weight of grace. And here's the amazing thing about it. That is the Christian life. In many ways, if you think about it, what does it look like to be a Christian? We can answer this question in so many ways, but I think one of the ways you would answer the question, what does it look like to be a Christian? What is the experience of a Christian? I think the experience of a Christian is one in which we are always simultaneously feeling the weight of sin and the weight of grace. Always hating sin, mortifying the flesh, waging war against sin, confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, and falling on God's grace, trusting in God's grace, celebrating, rejoicing over God's grace. So this, this really is the Christian experience. And I think we're told this morning implicitly that we need to do this underneath this text. Passages like Genesis 6, 1 to 8 should create within us the same attitude that we find in the church father, John Chrysostom. When Chrysostom was threatened with death by the empress Eudoxia, he sent word to her saying, listen to what he says to her. Go tell her that I fear nothing but sin. Let that fall on you for a moment. Not afraid to die, but afraid to sin. What if that began to characterize Christians in our day? That we're less concerned with calamity. Less concerned with dying or getting sick. Or having a car wreck. Or losing something. And more concerned with not sinning. More concerned with not displeasing God, go tell her that I fear nothing but sin. If you will, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to read chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. This is God's word. When man began to multiply on the face of the land... And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Maybe referring to lifespans, maybe referring to the time between now and the flood. There's debate over that. Verse 4 The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, 
And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Verse 5, and this is the passage we'll cover today. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask God, as I said a moment ago, to do this thing, to do this work of increasing the weight of sin in our consciousness and increasing the weight of grace in our consciousness. Father, we praise you as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that you are the eternal Father, and that Christ is the eternally begotten Son, eternally begotten, not made. Father, we thank you that you have included us in Christ as your beloved ones, that you have predestined us in him for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we praise you that you have made us partakers of your divine nature, that you have given us the heart of Christ, the mind of Christ, those of us who belong to you, those of us who are Christians. So, Father, we just worship you this morning as our Father in heaven, and we know that you reign supreme over all things. You rule our lives, and, Father, there is much to be distracted about this morning. Uh, In a room like this with various people, various ages, various struggles, Father, there are many things about which we could be worried this morning. Many things about which we could just mull over our minds instead of listening to the sermon, instead of listening to your word. We could just be biting our fingernails, thinking about what's going to happen next. And Father, we ask that this morning you would divinely work, sovereignly work in our hearts so that we are able to put those things aside and trust that you, our Heavenly Father, can care for those things and care for us. Father, we pray that you would be glorified, magnified, that your kingdom would come this morning, that your will would be done among us as we meet. You alone know what needs to happen in every family, in every life, And God, you are able by your Holy Spirit to apply the word specifically in ways that no man can. So God, would you do that work this morning, we ask. Father, we pray that you would give us our daily bread. We know that you provide for our needs. We've seen it many times. God, if we were honest, we could just sit and write forever all the ways that you have blessed us as your people. All the ways that you guide us and protect us and care for us, even in sorrowful moments. And uncomfortable moments, scary moments. 
And so, God, we just praise you for providing for us. And we ask that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, that you'd protect us this morning from sin. Maybe there's some in our congregation today, Father, who are just sort of playing with sin and, and, and maybe just teetering. Maybe they're going to leave here this morning and go sin intentionally, go and, and pursue ways of meeting their desires. God, would you root that out today, we ask, Father God. Would you, would you do a work against the devil's schemes in all of us, Father? And you know what that means for every individual. So, Father, we entrust ourselves now to you. We entrust our hearts to you. We entrust this service to you. We ask for your grace and your wisdom that you will do all things now for your glory and as we know you will for our good. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, number two this morning on that list there, the outline you have in the bulletin. We've already covered, as I said, number one, the demons. So today, we're going to begin with number two, and that is the depravity. For that, I want you to look closely at verses five to six in our text. Verses five to six. It says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's a mouthful. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. What we have here, before we say anything else, what we have here is the Lord's assessment. Do you see that? The Lord saw, and he assesses. God sees all and knows all, and his assessment or evaluation is all that matters. That's it. That's the final word. The final word on any person, the final word on any circumstance, on any nation, on any community, the final word is God's. His assessment of reality is real. Let me say that again. God's assessment of reality is real. Our assessment of reality is always often skewed. Left to ourselves, we always assess wrongly. In our own selves, our reason, our intellect is is twisted, darkened, blinded, perverted. One of the things that theologians have debated over the centuries is uh, how the fall has affected man. And one of the uh, slightly off ways of thinking about the effect of sin on man is that really what happens is the passions are not governed. This, is a, this particularly plays a role in medieval theology that the passions are, are, are not governed by reason. But if only the passions would submit to reason, then man would be okay. No, the reason itself is infected, infested with sin. Man is infested with sin in mind and will and affections, in emotions, passions. He is darkened in his mind in every respect. So left to ourselves, we always assess wrongly. This is our world. The world goes on as though nothing is wrong. There's nothing wrong with with murdering millions of unborn children. Nothing wrong with with rampant homosexuality and sexual perversion. Nothing wrong. In fact, these things are to be celebrated, not just embraced. The assessment of the world is always twisted. It is always corrupted. 
It is always darkened by sin of the mind and the will and the affections. So what do we do? How do we escape this wrong assessment that for us is inevitable? The only way is to be constantly exposed to divine truths. You see, when God's assessment is constantly being infused into our minds, then our assessment begins to match God's assessment. One of the things I love doing anytime I can is showing why we should read the Bible. Because oftentimes in churches, you know, you kind of just hear it. Read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. Sure, okay, is that just something I need to do? Is that just part of this whole Christianity thing? Is that just one of the great disciplines and that is all the case? But why? Why do we sit down and read the Bible in the morning when we wake up? Why do we meditate on the Bible throughout the day? Why spend the time? Why carve out the time to be in the Bible? And here is another answer to that question, many answers to that question. But one of them is this, that by reading God's word, we are constantly being confronted with his assessment And by reading his word, his assessment becomes our assessment. We begin to see reality both internally and externally the way God does. They begin to align. And the person who is filled with the spirit is the person whose view of reality is aligned with God's view of reality. Let me say this emphatically. That will not happen without reading the Bible. That will not happen without exposure to God's word through preaching, through listening, through reading, through meditating, all kind, through memorizing, various ways through reading great biblical, biblically saturated books. These are the ways in which we align with the Lord. So what is God's assessment? As we read it in these verses, what is his evaluation At this point, one commentator, a leading commentator on Genesis, Gordon Wenham, says this about verse 5 in particular. Listen to this. Few texts in the Old Testament are so explicit and all-embracing as this in specifying the extent of human sinfulness and depravity. So we're at one of the, the most glaring texts in all of the Bible. If last week... We were looking at one of the most difficult texts in all of the Bible. This week, we're looking at one of the most obvious, explicit, in-your-face, glaring texts about the sinfulness of humanity here in verse 5 and 6. So what can we say about this depravity? Well, I think there are four, at least four. There's probably much more that could be said, but there are at least four things I want you to leave here with today. Four things, four aspects of this depravity that we find in verses 5 and 6. So let's go through these. First, it's breadth. We have to see its breadth. Verse 5 says, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. So what does that mean? The wickedness of man was great. Let's let's take it. When you have a verse like this that is so jam-packed with descriptive language for something. You have to take it apart, dismantle it, and take it piece by piece. So the first of these, I think, is this first phrase in verse 5, which which denotes its breadth. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. This word great, you might just think, that's kind of a general word. We all overuse the word great. Hey, I'm doing this. I'm going here. Great. 
Hey, let's meet next week. Great. I mean, we use that word all of the time. So that word gets stripped of any kind of meaning. It's a very vague, nebulous word. Has no real meaning. So how do we, how do we bring some precision to that? We're just left there. Okay, great. Great. It was great. But here we see that this word actually carries the idea of numerous, varied, much. This is the muchness of a thing. Many. So what we have is an abundance and variety of evil deeds being carried out in the world. So the text is taking us by the hand and and bringing us into a dark cave, if you will, and showing us the sinfulness of man at the time. And the first thing that the Holy Spirit wants to show us is the external reality. If you could sort of go up in a hot air balloon and look down over different patches of the world back then at this time, that's what you would see. An abundance and variety of external crimes and wicked deeds. Who can even fathom what the world was like at this time? I think we get a little sense of this during civil wars in countries that do not have stable governments. Maybe we get a sense for what it was like then when we see rioting, when there are storms or other things that that sort of free up the people to go and, and, and do all kinds of crimes against one another. Maybe you think of particular times in history when wickedness was just so widespread in a particular area. But the idea that we have here is one of rampant wickedness on the earth. You could go, if there was news coverage back then, you could go and from from town to town, from city to city, both urban and rural, no matter where you go, this is what you would see on the earth. And we're going to get some more details about that as we move into chapter 6. But at this point, it's just kept very general for us. So we see the breadth of it. It's everywhere. It's all over the place. And it's varied and abundant. Second, we see its depth. So we got its breadth. We see its depth. In verse 5, this wickedness or evil is associated, listen to this language, with every intention of the thoughts of his heart. That is incredible language. That is power-packed language. We know that scripture puts sin at the level of the heart, the center of a person. So what is the heart? It's not the, the beating organ in your chest. It is... The center of a person. This is the core of a, of, of a personality. The center of your, of your thought life. Your, your feeling. This is, this is the core of who you are as a human being. The center. And we get Jesus' focus as we talked about for about a year. We get Jesus' focus on the heart in the Sermon on the Mount. So what Jesus wants to do is he wants to take these Pharisees who are so focused on how they are perceived and what they do on the outside, and he wants to take them to the heart and show them that the problem is the heart. It's the lust of the heart. It's the anger of the heart, and so on and so forth, the motives of the heart. So we know that the Bible takes it to the level of the heart. In Jeremiah 17, 9 to 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his deeds, according to the fruit of his deeds. So we see only God can see into the heart fully, and it is desperately sick and wicked, deceitful above all things. 
So we know throughout the Bible that God wants us to peel back. This, this should be obvious to the Christian. This is not obvious to the, un, to the unbeliever, to the non-Christian. But to the Christian, we know that. That God wants us to peel back the external and look down in there and see the heart. We know this. But Genesis 6-5 takes us even deeper. That's what I want you to see. This is, the, this is how incredible this verse is. It takes us even deeper, and not just a step deeper. It takes us two layers deeper. We're not just talking about the heart. We're talking about the intentions of the thoughts of the heart. We're taking this all the way back. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants us to see. All the way to the center of the center. And what is there? Evil. This word intention means something made into shape, something formed. It is the product of a potter. The noun comes from the verb uh, that, that a potter would form. A potter takes something and forms it. And this is the formed thing of the heart. This is the formed thing behind the heart, which is behind the action. These are the ideas or designs formed at the deepest level of a person's thought. Evil. And here's what I think we should take from this. And we need to hear this loud and clear. Any attack on sin in your life, any attack on sin in our lives must go to this level, to the intentions of the thoughts of the heart. All those imaginations all those fantasies, those hopes and dreams, those clinging to this life, all of those little spurts of thought that come up and infuse life or death into the heart and then infuse life or death into our lives, how we treat one another, how we live, determines all that we do. So when we play around in the mind, thinking it doesn't matter, it's okay, we destroy our own lives. Because everything begins here. Every bad habit begins here. Every destructive, toxic relationship begins here. With the thoughts, the intentions of the thoughts of the heart. This is where Satan plays. Not always in the outside. He'll leave you alone on the outside. Let's, let life just seem like it's going well. And maybe, maybe we need to be shattered this morning as we hear this. Maybe we need to consider this. Maybe you're looking at the outside and things seem all right. Things seem pretty good from your vantage point. Remember the assessment thing? From your assessment, you're, do, you're doing okay. Things are all right. Life's just moving along. And Satan is really good at keeping your eyes on the outside. Not at the deepest level of the deepest level, which is where the Holy Spirit wants to take us. The Word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's how we get down into this level. So we see the breadth, we see the depth, and now I want you to see the totality. It's totality. In verse 5, we get these words. Now listen to this. It just keeps going. It's incredible. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is incredible. Every, only, all the time. It's not just abundant and varied out there all over the face of the earth. It's not just at the, at the deepest layer of the deepest layer. But it is perpetual. It is every, 
only, all the time, literally every day. It is a constant flow of evil in every person. You imagine this world of Noah. It makes it all the more remarkable when you read of Noah's character. He would have stuck out like a star in an entirely darkened night. And the persecution, the laughter, the mockery that he would have experienced in this climate is unthinkable. So we see its breadth, its depth, its totality. And fourthly, I want you to see its offense. Look at verse 6. It's offense. And the Lord regretted or was grieved or was sorry, which is the way we should take this word uh, in this particular context. The Lord was grieved or was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. We know what is going on in the hearts of men. What is going on in the heart of God? By far, the most significant aspect of man's depravity is the offense it is to God. In fact, you could just forget everything I've said up to this point. Because if it offends God, that's the key. That's the point. Sin at its core and and, and, and seen in a summary fashion is an offense against God. Nothing else matters if it offends God. He is the creator. He is the lawgiver. And throughout the New Testament, we read of pleasing God as being the highest goal. You find that all throughout the epistles of Paul. To walk worthy of the calling. To, to please God. That's the highest thing we, we can aim for in this life is to please God. And here we are given the extreme opposite of that in this verse. It is difficult to mine the depths of this verse. How does the eternally unchangeable God who exists in a perpetual state of perfect happiness and bliss experience grief? I mean, this has perplexed theologians for for, for millennia now. The early church fathers had a particularly difficult time with this in that context with with Greek philosophy uh, dominating the world, really. Uh, They had a a lot of difficulty with this. How is it that God is is, uh, experiencing grief and and, and sorrow, I mean, he's God. He's unchangeable. He's impassable. How is it that he feels? Kent Hughes gives, a, I think, a very helpful summary of this. He says, Though God's eternal joy and happiness cannot be disturbed, he is not a disinterested observer of the human scene. One of the marks of personality is feeling. And here in Genesis, we read that God's heart was filled with pain. The word expresses the most intense form of human emotion. It is a mixture of rage and bitter anguish. If you want to get a sense for what this feeling of God was, is against sin, taken here against the sin in that time, This word is used in three other places that kind of fill it out for us. This is the feeling of Dinah's brothers when she was raped. You know, Jacob's daughter was raped. And the brothers respond in an equally, one could argue, horrific way. Taking vengeance on all of them, all of the men. So this is the feeling they experienced as they 
found out that their sister had been raped. This is the feeling that Jonathan had when he found out that Saul was trying to kill David. Jonathan and David were the best of friends, probably among people, probably some of the best friends you've ever seen. So much so that among some academics and professors, there's a, the, the notion that actually Jonathan and David are in a homosexual relationship, ridiculous. They're friends. They're the best of friends. Jonathan, when he found this out, he was grieved. And David's reaction to the death of his son Absalom. In each case, we get a sense for what it is that God felt. However we are to understand that. And we see in the Lord Jesus, God incarnate, we see him feeling the, the, the expression when he sees the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. The text says he, he, he was angry. Christ was angry at them. And we see him when he goes into the temple to cleanse it of all the wicked money loving that was there. He was zealous and angry at their sin. We see his grief, his sorrow over death, the death of Lazarus, even though he's about to raise him from the dead. We see this as he weeps over Jerusalem. We see God the Father. We see God manifested in the person of Christ. And we can see the grief and we can see the sorrow in the incarnate Son of God. But this is what God felt. So what do we do with this? And I think at this point you might be tempted to think this. Man, the, sure, the world sure was bad back then. And that's it. You just move on. The bad times. Bad times. I'm glad we're not there anymore. But here's something that I think is very intentional that the Holy Spirit has done through the biblical author after the flood. So we got right here. God's going to wipe. We're getting there, but God's going to wipe everyone out except for Noah and his family. And what do we have right after the flood? Genesis 8, 21. God says this. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God didn't get it all. He didn't get it all. One day he will get it all because only those in Christ made perfect will be before his face. Noah and his sons, also sinners. And after Noah and his sons, we will see the world continue in sin. Shortly thereafter, we'll see the Tower of Babel and the wickedness of that. We'll see all the world all of the evil that we read in Genesis and beyond. We get to Pharaoh in Exodus. Genesis 8, 21 tells us that man's heart is still like this. Get this. Man's heart is still like this. In other words, everything I just described about the people of that time describes you and me. All of us. Jeremiah 17, 9, years after the flood. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, which we just read. And then Paul in Romans 3, 10 to 12, listen to this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. There is no such thing as a seeker-sensitive church. Nobody is seeking God until the Holy Spirit of God draws them. There's no such thing as a seeker. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. 
Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is not some pessimistic preacher telling you that. That is the apostle quoting the Old Testament. So although the time of the flood was unique in one respect, we have not changed. So here's the question. Do you see your world and your own heart like this? Or do you drink in, do you imbibe all that the world says about itself? Or does this govern your worldview? Or have we become so worldly, so consumed with our comforts and our daily routines and our money and our houses and making sure that our our lifestyle is great and happy and comfortable that we don't see the world this way at all? We're just worldly people living worldly lives. A text like this shatters that. I pray it will do that for all of us freshly this morning. Another thing this tells us is that we should be grateful for God's grace. God's grace is the only thing that stands between us and this. That's it. That's the only thing. And that leads us to our next point now, which is the destruction. The demons, the depravity, and now we come to the destruction. So if God's assessment is depravity, and if his feeling is grief, which we've just seen, what will be his response? Look at verses 7 and 8 as we finish up this morning. Verses 7 and 8. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What an incredible verse. In the opening chapters of Genesis, we have creation. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates. And here we have destruction of what God has made. And people kind of debate, is is God grieved over the sin, uh, but not the destruction? I think it's a whole package that it grieves God to destroy humans. God loves human beings. He, he made human beings for his own glory. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He does not delight in the destruction of evil people. He delights in his justice. But he does not delight in that. So we see that God is now going to destroy what he has made. Specifically man and the other creatures that live on the earth. Why the other creatures? Why that poor bull or lion or dog? Why? Why the birds? Why is God going to destroy all of these creatures as well? And the answer, I think, is very simple. They were made for the sake of man. In God's creation, as man goes, so goes everything else. Remember the fall? Cursed is the ground because of you. All of creation follows Man, the creation followed human beings at the beginning. And we read in Romans 8, 19 to 21, that praise God, the creation is going to follow man at the end. And so it says this, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You know what that means? That when all is said and done and God has has glorified his saints, that following in tow with human beings, being glorified, being perfectly uh, redeemed, perfectly adopted, the creation will be made new with human beings. All of it. So much so that Paul can hear speak of creation as though it were, were just eagerly longing and waiting, anticipating what God is going to do for his saints. The text uses strong language here. I will blot out man. It's incredibly strong language. It, it's the language used for separating filth from a dish. You think about a dirty dish, you know, after you've eaten out of it and you leave it for a while. Just kind of sits there and starts stinking. Maybe if you've got some flies, as now the flies seem to be everywhere. Some flies start collecting on it. It just gets disgusting. And the image really is of coming along and separating the filth from the dish. Cleaning it off. Wiping it off. Just as the filth would be wiped off of a dish, so too will this sinful state be wiped off of the face of the earth. Or rather, sinners wiped off the face of the earth. It is also the language used for language used for erasing a name from a book. Not just sort of you think of a little eraser, but scratching it out of the book. This is God's response to sin in every individual. And at the end of time, what an awful picture this is. This is not a cheerful message. It's not one that makes us laugh, makes us smile from ear to ear. This is one of the reasons why Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. The Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. There is a place in life, of course, for laughter and being happy and cheerful. That's good. We should enjoy all the things that God has given us, and we should delight in Him and be joyful. But in a world like this, carrying around hearts like this, we should mourn over sin. So we don't have, we have here an awful picture, but, and just as the text we read earlier from Ephesians 2, when we get to verse 4, and we see all of this sin, it's being piled up, but... God. And that's exactly what we have in this verse, in verse 8. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's interesting here because you get the word Noah after but. But really, if you wanted to capture the meaning of this verse, you would still, you would still say, but God. But Noah found favor. Or you could say it this way, but God graced Noah. This word favor is the Hebrew word for grace. He found grace. We've seen a lot of God's grace in Genesis so far. We've talked a lot about it. But this is the first occurrence of the word itself in the Old Testament. The first occurrence of the word grace. In verse 9, we will learn a little more about Noah. We don't get there yet, though. It's interesting. In verse 9, we will learn that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Why? Why? Because of God's grace. 
See, the order of the text is very important here. We have that, that Noah found favor, and then it moves on to describe Noah's character. First, grace. Then we have the products of God's grace. Why will some be saved in the end? The answer is grace. That's it. Period. Why is it that in heaven there will be people? Why is it now that there are people on the earth who have affections for God? Why do you love God? You know, it's one of the things that I think is so backwards with this idea is that uh, this idea that we, we come to God and we, we freely love him and then he then grants us grace. The most amazing aspect of grace is that he gives us a heart of love towards him. That is the great joy of knowing God in love. That itself is the end. The end is that we know God. What does it mean to know God? It means to love him. And so it is not this thing where we just independently come up to God and love him. And then he bestows grace on us. But rather, he graces us to love him. He gives us that we might have hearts for him. So let me ask you this this morning. Do you have a heart for God? Do you love him? Do you really love him? Do you know him? I didn't ask you whether you've done this sin or that sin. I didn't ask you if you've done this good deed or that good deed. But do you love God from the heart? And all of this is meant to point us, as I close this morning, all of this is meant to point us to a theology of singularity. What do I mean by that? A theology of singularity. Here's what I mean. We've been looking for one single individual. All along so far, we've been looking for one single individual, the he of chapter 3, verse 15. He will crush the head of the serpent. He will crush Satan, who uh, Eve's descendant, the seed, the offspring. We've been looking for one person. Now all of human history is brought down to one man. And notice here, it doesn't say, and, and Noah and his family. It just says Noah, one man. We presume his family followed him in worship of God. But here it comes down to one man. Salvation will come through this one man. Judgment will fall on the rest, but salvation will be focused on one person. And what I want to leave you with this morning is that this prepares us for the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that God has done in my heart since starting to preach through Genesis is just given me such a, a more magnificent view of Christ that already, I mean, I, I, I knew that Christ was the seed back, you know, years ago. I, I knew that, that I was going to find these kinds of things in Genesis and, you know, let us make man and so forth. But it's when you follow the text through and you take it in slowly in bite-sized pieces, you begin to see the magnificence of Christ in God's plan. And Christ stands up tall at the very beginning of the Bible and he is, he is putting your eyes on him as you walk through the rest of Scripture. Christ here in the opening chapters of Genesis is obvious and amazing. And here we have it again, I think, slightly veiled, but we have it here. This prepares us for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one man who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God. One man who has clean hands and a pure heart. Only one man. 
So we must be in Him. Keep this always before your eyes. We grieve God. We grieve God. But Christ pleases God. We must never forget that. In ourselves, we do not please God. Make no mistake about that. Christ does. And in Him, so do we. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your sacred Scriptures. Thank You for the Holy Spirit who guides us through them. Father, we praise You that sin is not the final story. Sin is not the end of the matter, but that grace is, and grace through the one man, Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for the redemption that we have from sin through Christ. Father, I I pray that all of us would feel the weight of sin more. God, that we would step outside of this superficial, comfortable, carnal culture that just feeds our passions and our self-fulfillment and our earthly dreams of bliss here and now. Father, I pray that you would shatter that for us mentally, that you would give us a real view of the world from your perspective. The wrath of God abides on the world, Paul says in Romans 1. And Father, we often forget that. We toy with sin. We don't confess it. We perpetuate it. And it devours our lives. So Father, be gracious to us this morning. Be gracious in showing us our sin and be gracious in applying the balm of Christ Jesus to our hearts. Give us repentance, Father. We know that repentance is a gift from you, from the heart you have given us. Would you grant that we would repent truly, not just confess, but also repent? Father, help us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.